Hi, my name is Julie. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. The New Testament reading is found in Romans chapter 1, beginning in the 16th verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel from faithfulness for faith, as it is written, the righteous person will live by faith. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 3, 16 to 21. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and the people love darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the ways that we've already seen on display today the power of your transforming work in us, individually and as a community. And, Lord, as we open the scriptures this morning, we ask that you would open up our hearts and by your Holy Spirit you'd speak to us, convict us, challenge us, change us, conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said... Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Glenn Packiam. I'm the pastor here at New Life Downtown, and we are so thrilled uh, to be gathering together as the church. And this morning, we are starting a new series on the book of Romans, and it's a series that'll take us all the way pretty much through the end of November. So we're going to be camping out in this book Um, for a long time this fall. Now, I want to say just a couple things to frame our discussion of this series. Romans is a letter. It's a letter that Paul, uh, an apostle, a missionary, a church planter in the first century, it's a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Rome. And I I want us to just kind of have a little bit of the backdrop in our minds when we 
uh, as we begin this study, because otherwise we'll just sort of imagine that this was some kind of random book of theology or just Paul writing his thoughts about stuff. This is a letter to a real congregation in Rome, and it was unlike so many of Paul's other letters. This was a letter to a church that he had never visited. Uh, in, in fact, it's, it's very likely that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth, from the city of Corinth, in the year 57 AD. Now that matters because in the 40s, in the AD 40s, that is, uh, that all of the Jews in Rome were kicked out of the city. Now that's kind of a big deal, and part of the reason for that is under the emperor Claudius, there, was this, there were uh, disputes and fights going on among the Jews, possibly even about what to do with Jesus, whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And so the emperor Claudius was like, I don't want any of this unrest in, in, in my city. And so he kicked out all of the Jews from Rome. Now, most of you may be aware that these first churches were, at, were made up of Jewish believers, Jewish people who began to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and then later on, non-Jews, i.e. Gentiles, get ad, added into the churches. Now, when all the Jews get kicked out, guess who's left in the church in Rome? Just the Gentiles, right? And so they start to feel like they're special. They start to feel like they're better, that, they've, they, that maybe they've got a better place. They understand the gospel better. And Later on then, by the time the AD 50s, Nero becomes the emperor. Now, some of you, you're tuned into your Roman history. You're like, Nero, he was bad, wasn't he? He was later in his political career, but early on, he did a couple good things, one of which was he lifted the ban on Jews. He let the Jews return back to Rome. Now, the setting then that is, that is going of this, of, this, of this letter is that the church in Rome now it was started by Jewish believers in Jesus, then Gentiles are added, then Jews are kicked out of Rome, and now they've returned, and there's all this fighting now about who's better, about who's more important. And so there's tensions, I mean, listen, real tensions about ethnic superiority. Again, this is important for us to know because when we think, when we say, look, the church stands against the powers of racism or any claims of white supremacy or any other kind of, when we say that, we're not just saying it because, oh, well, that's an issue of our day. This is always what the gospel has confronted. This is always what the gospel has challenged. And so even in the first century, uh, this church in Rome was squabbling about, was it more special to be a Gentile or more special to be a Jew or who had the, the, who had the real handle on the good news? And so Paul writes to say, let's talk about the gospel and let's talk about the full impact of what this good news means for you and for the world. Now, when I say the word gospel, what comes to mind? What do you think is the news that the church has. If you were to ask your non-Christian friends or folks who don't go to church, what do you think Christians are all about? Like, what's the gospel? What's the, you know, they would probably say to you, isn't it like a list of rules that you guys are supposed to behave and, and, and you know, like do these things and do that? And, and really when they, if they were to unpack it, they'd say, isn't the gospel essentially good advice? about how you think we all should live and all the things you think we should do or not do. It's just good advice, right? And even for me to say to you that this word gospel means, just in its meaning of the word, the Greek word euangelion, just means good news, even for us today, the word news makes us a bit cynical. 
doesn't it? You hear the word news and you're like, I'll be the judge of that, you know. And so, so it's a contested word. It's a contentious word. But interestingly enough, in Paul's day, in the, in the first century, that word, that phrase, good news, was a political slogan. It had been used around Rome, and it had been used because Julius Caesar, again, some of you are like, ooh, I know all of this story, or I, I love the Shakespeare play, or I once, you know, whatever. Julius Caesar was assassinated, and Rome starts to fragment, right? There's all these different pieces of it, and the question is, who's going to win? Who's going who's gonna to take over? Who's going to be the heir to the empire? And a guy named Octavian, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, Octavian, becomes Caesar. He takes over. He wins the great victory. And so as soon as news of his victory began to spread, guess what they called it? Gospel. Good news. Euangelion. Octavian has won a great victory. And because he's won this great victory, there's a new, there's a new reality now. We're going to have to submit to this guy as Caesar. And if you were on the wrong side of the battle, let's say you were like, no, I was actually hoping that Mark Antony would win, you know, and, 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 and maybe it was this other guy, and you'd really cast your lot with one of the other factions. The news about Octavian winning the victory meant that you had to repent. You had to switch sides. You had to align with the new king. And so all of those things are in the backdrop here when Paul begins his letter to the Romans and starts to talk to them about the gospel. Now, as we get into it, I I can't think about the question of what is the gospel without thinking about that classic movie, Nacho Libre, where Nacho says, the brothers don't think I know anything about the gospel, but I do. Right, And that's a little bit of what we're going to wrestle with this morning is to say, so what is this thing? What is this good news? Is there some new victory? Is there some new reality? What does it mean for us? So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. We're going to read the first four verses and then we'll work our way throughout the chapter. If you've got your phone or whatever, you can use it, an app or just follow along on the screen. From Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for God's good news. I like that translation because it just says it straight up. The gospel of God, God's good news, God's announcement. Not Caesar's good news, not Octavian's good news, God's good news. What is it, Paul? God promised this good news about his son, not Caesar's son, not Octavian, that son, no, God's son, Ahead of time, through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, his son was the descendant from David. He was publicly identified as God's son with power through his resurrection from the dead, which was based on the spirit of holiness. This son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I want to leave these verses up here for a moment and just say a couple, point out a couple phrases to you. He's talking about Jesus as God's son, but he's also talking about Jesus as the son of David, as the descendant of David. Both of those references mean something, okay? Who was David? Even if you haven't been around church very long, what do we know about David? David had this famous battle. He fought Goliath, right? We use, oh, it's a David and Goliath matchup today, the underdog, all of this stuff. What's what's the deal with the David and Goliath story? Two nations were at war. And David said, I will be the representative of my nation and win a great victory against the representative of your, uh, of your armies. And so 
in Jewish imagination, the son of David, quote unquote, the Messiah, is the person who will stand in on behalf of God's people and win a great battle fight a great battle, win a great victory. So when Paul says Jesus is the descendant of David, Paul's saying Jesus is the one who's won the greatest battle of all. Jesus is the one who has stood in, not just for all of Israel, but for all of the human race. Jesus is the one who has faced down the greatest enemy of all, the enemy of sin and death, and Jesus is the one who's won a great victory on our behalf. He is the true descendant of David. Now, the other reference there, the Son of God, that, that is, is a way of saying that Jesus is God. In fact, the phrase right at the end of it, this son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this word Christ, we've said this a number of times here at downtown, is not Jesus' last name, right? His parents were not Joseph and Mary Christ, right? Christ is a title, and it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the the one who wins the great battle and victory on our behalf. But then this other word, our Lord. Here, Paul is borrowing language from two great traditions. One, he's borrowing it from the great Hebrew Jewish tradition of Yahweh as the Lord. Yahweh as the great sovereign over creation. All of the Old Testament uses that word Lord to speak of the God who is the sovereign of creation, right? But Paul's also ripping that word from Roman political propaganda. You see, when Octavian became Caesar, he began to call himself the Lord. The Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Paul's saying, that is fake news. The true good news is there is only one Lord. There has always only been one Lord. It is Yahweh and his son, Jesus Christ, is also the Lord. So in, just in the opening four verses, what Paul said to us is that Jesus is the saving one and the sovereign one. Jesus is the saving one and the sovereign one, the one who fights on our behalf and the one who is sovereign overall. So when we say, what is the good news, in a word, it's Jesus. What is the good news? It's Jesus. That's the simplest way of saying this. What is the gospel? It is Jesus Jesus, who is the saving one and the sovereign one. Amen? Now, as we keep going, man, that's just the first four verses, right? As we keep going, verse 5, it says, Through Jesus, we have received God's grace and our appointment to be apostles. This was to bring all the Gentiles, some translations say all the nations, to faithful obedience for his sake. Now, this phrase, faithful obedience, is important. It's important because it doesn't just show up in Romans 1, the beginning of his letter. It shows up at the end, Romans 16. Now that secret is revealed through what the prophets wrote. It is made known to the Gentiles, and here it is again, in order to lead them to, in order to lead to their faithful obedience based on the command of the eternal God. Now this is kind of English class 101, right? If you're to write an essay, composition 101, make sure you have the topic sentence and then make sure you have the summary sentence, right? If you're reading a letter all the way through, we want to know what are, what's the thread you're going to pull through. It's there in Romans 1 and it's there in Romans 16. The purpose of the good news is to bring us to faithful obedience. The good news is designed to bring us 
to faithful obedience. Now this matters. The good news is about Jesus, and it is designed to bring us to faithful obedience. This is important because some of you, if you've grown up in church and you've heard other sermons on Romans or about grace or about salvation, you might have heard a version that sounds something like this. Once God was a legalist, and we were terrible at keeping his, his rules, and then God softened in his old age and said, just let Jesus die for all our sins and we'll call it good. And now, it doesn't matter how you live. As long as you believe in Jesus, you're going to heaven. Now, there's just enough bits of that that are true that, that, that it gets served up at church a lot. But we can't ignore that the bookends of Paul's letter is, this good news about Jesus is so powerful it doesn't just forgive your sins, but it brings you to faithful obedience. It doesn't just announce something that's true, it creates something that's new. It creates a new kind of power. Paul will not only talk about Jesus in the book of Romans, he'll also talk about the Holy Spirit. And he'll talk about the Holy Spirit as the power to actually be able to do this, something that is new that is new to the way that, that, that this is working in the world. So the good news is designed to bring us to faithful obedience. Now you might say, well, why does it matter? Why does faithful obedience matter? I mean, couldn't God just say, you know what, these rules, a little bit overkill, let's just forget it, and how about if you love me and I love you, how you live doesn't really matter. Why is faithful obedience the, the result, the product of the gospel. Why? Because, you see, it was unfaithful disobedience that started all the trouble. See, if we're going to talk about good news, we have to talk about the bad news, too. Why was the good news necessary? Well, I've got some fairly offensive bad news for you. And this is, I thought about this after the 9 a.m. this morning. I thought, there's going to be a moment as we talk about the bad news where there's a chance for all of you to be offended by it. Because the good news is good only when we face the bad news. And understand it. You say, wow, there's something I didn't want to admit that our unfaithful disobedience is actually unraveling us. It's not just breaking arbitrary rules. It's not just, oh, I was a bad person. I didn't behave. There's something deeper going on. Keep following with me. Romans 1, verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen because they are understood through the things that God has made. In other words, you look at the created world and you can see hints of God's nature being revealed in the world. And you're like, oh, look at that. In fact, the whole Genesis 1 story is God ordering the world in such a way that reveals his character and his wisdom, right? And, and, and then, but then Paul says, it doesn't just stop there because humans are without excuse. Verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor God or thank him. Instead, their reasoning became pointless. Their foolish hearts were darkened. While they were claiming to be wise, they made fools of themselves, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that look like mortal humans, birds, animals, reptiles. What's Paul talking about? Idolatry. 
He's talking about idolatry. Now, for the listeners in Paul's day, they're like, oh, yeah, I've seen all those idols in the Roman marketplace. I've seen all of those statues. But Paul is not just talking about the Roman context. He's saying this is a human thing. From the beginning, we have stopped worshiping God and begun to worship something else. And then verse 24, so God abandoned them to their heart's desires, which led to the moral corruption of degrading their bodies with each other. Now, if you're tracking the progression, it says that darkened minds with pointless reasoning and then corrupted hearts and then degraded bodies. This progression is important because sometimes we think, either we think sin is arbitrary, I just broke some random rules, who even cares about those stupid rules? Or we think sin is just a spiritual problem. It's like, well, my soul has like darkness in it. Paul's saying, no, sin actually destroys everything about who you are. Sin destroys everything about it, not just your minds, not just your hearts, but actually your bodies. It's going to lead to the degrading of your bodies. Now, here's why. Because we are made in the image of God, whenever you worship something that is not God, you become less than human. Now, I'm going to leave this up here and, and, and unpack this a bit more. Genesis 1, God orders the world. It's the revelation of his wisdom and of his love. This is how there's night and day and sea and land and the birds and the creatures and all of this stuff. And then he creates humans. And what does he say? He says, let us make them in our image that they may rule and subdue. N.T. Wright uses the metaphor of an angled mirror, able to behold the glory of God and then reflect it back into the world. You can only reflect God's rule and God's wisdom and God's love into the world if you are beholding it. If you are beholding it. If you are not beholding God, you're going to reflect something else into the world. If you're beholding yourself and saying, I am God, then what you're going to reflect into the world is you. I mean, isn't that the bad news about leadership is you always reproduce who you are, <laughs> right? Oh, it's depressing. And in the garden, Adam and Eve say, instead of saying, we'll worship you, God, and then reflect you into the world, they say, yeah, I think we'd rather be you. I think we'd rather be God. We'll take this fruit. We heard the reading this morning, this fruit, it'll make us like God. And so they begin to worship something that is not God, and it actually made them less than human. Being fully human is reflecting the image of God. And that happens by beholding God in worship. Worship something that's not God, you, the, you become less than the image of God, and to be less than the image of God is to be less than human. Now, this is offensive to say to someone, hey, if you're not worshiping the one true God, you're actually becoming less than human. It is completely offensive. And yet every instance of sin and evil in the world has at its root wrong worship, has at its root idolatry. Even the, listen, the horrors and the evil of what we saw yesterday in Charlottesville, what, what does that spring from? How did these people become so disfigured in their thinking and wrong and destructive? And, and how did evil inhabit them? You know why? Because they began to worship their ethnicity as God. 
They began to worship their nation as God. They began to worship a certain kind. Anytime you worship something that is not God, it makes you less than human. Now, this is massive because now we can talk about sin, not as some arbitrary rule-breaking as if God has some random rules, but sin is fundamentally a destruction of yourself. Sin is fundamentally a disfiguring and a a deconstructing, a disfiguring of yourself. And then Romans 1 verse 25, as he goes on, he says, they traded God's truth for a lie And they worshiped and served the creation instead of the creator who is blessed forever. And Paul says, this is the lie. This is the lie, the lie of sin, the lie of the serpent in the garden was eat this fruit and you will be like God. In other words, sin is always telling you that this is the way to become more than human. But actually it ends up making you less than human. Sin always promises to make us more than human, but ends up making us less than human. Think about it. All of the different things. Oh, listen, if you would just cast off all sexual restraint and just do whatever you want and just be free, we're, we're, we're the liberated people, just sleep with whoever you want to, it, it, it'll make you more than human. And then it ends up making you less than human. We keep trying to say, no, 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 it doesn't matter who you sleep with, it doesn't matter how you live out your sexual life, just, just do it, just be free. And, and, and for decades now, society has said, this kind of impulse to only have a, a, a committed relationship, and that's, that's, that's just fussy, imposed from the outside stuff, just throw it off. And all of these social scientists, psychologists, and anthropologists are saying, did you know that sex is so powerful that it bonds two people together that by having that with multiple different people continuously in open relationships and frivolous flings and all of this stuff, you're actually dehumanizing yourself. And so pornography promises to give us the feeling of being more than human. It ends up making you less than human. But it's not just sex. It's power. It's any grab for influence or control. You say, well, if I just climb the ladder, if I just do this, I'll become more powerful and I'll, I'll use the power for good. That's the classic one, right? I'll use this power for good, but I want it. And before long, we're like Gollum, my precious. <laughs> I mean, Lord of the Rings is this perfect meditation on what happens when power becomes your God. You remember the scene when, when uh, Gandalf, you know, Frodo says, Gandalf, you just take the ring. And Gandalf goes, do not tempt me, Frodo Baggins, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and he says, I would be tempted to use it for good, of course. But all grasping for power and control makes us less than human. We end up like golems shells of ourselves. And you, you know people. Some of you lived long enough. You know people like, oh, we went to college together. We started out in our careers together. We both wanted to change the world and we were both so optimistic. And then 10 years on, 20 years on, you're like, man, that dude is a jerk. And, and you say, oh, I, he's so cutthroat. He's so callous. He's so unfeeling. It's like all he cares about is the bottom line. What happens? The pursuit of power 
made you less than human. It promised to make you more than human. It ended up making you less than human. What about money? What about the making money, the ordering pursuit of our life? To say, well, this is all I want. Everything's got to be driven by profit. It's funny, this week I was talking to a business executive who told me, he said, Glenn, I was at the place where it was an option for me to possibly become a partner in this business consulting firm. And I really considered it. But then I discovered that every person who had been made partner, 50%, more than 50% of them, after they retired, seven years after they retired, and that the company had a a forced retirement of age 62. He said more than half of the people who became partner within seven years of retiring were dead. And he's like, what kind of stress do you have to embrace to live that kind? At some point, we call it, you know, in a secular standpoint, we call it the law of diminishing returns, right? You're like, ooh, get this, then I'll get this. If I do this, then I'll get this. The Bible calls it idolatry, <laughs> You elevate and pursue something too hard as the central pursuit of your life, it ends up not making you more human, but less human. It starts to eat away at you. What are those things in your life? What are those things in your own heart? When we realize that sin is so destructive because it disfigures and disorders us, now we're ready to hear what's so good about the good news. Why is the gospel such good news? Why is it? In verse 16, Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's own power for salvation. Circle, underline that word salvation. To all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel from faithfulness for faith as it is written, the righteous person will live by faith. First of all, the gospel is good news because it is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. This word for salvation stands for words like health and preservation and safety. But oftentimes, the very physical thing was just a metaphor for being delivered from destruction and for restoration to wholeness. If I were to put a sentence to say, Glenn, what is salvation the way Paul uses it? I would say salvation is God putting everything back together again. Salvation is God put, beginning with you, <laughs> beginning with you and the Lord. And, begin, and then your relationships with others. Now, this is why it's so amazing. Is it's the power of God for salvation. It's God putting everything back together again. It's God's radical reordering of the world. If Genesis 1 is God ordering the world with his wisdom and his love, think about what happens after Genesis 3. Everything becomes disordered, right? Adam's hiding from God. What happened to walking in the cool of the day with God? The human-God relationship is disordered. Then Adam and Eve, the male-female relationship is disordered. She made, uh, he, you know, she made me do it, or the snake made me do it, blame, all of this stuff. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, brothers are killing one another. Genesis 9, the flood, the ground itself is rising up against 
humans. The whole story from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 is the story of how sin disorders the world. And so when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you're saying, yeah, there's nothing to be ashamed of because it truly is good news to say, look, God is going to put everything back together again. But it means admitting that things are broken. Things that we don't want to say. The rest of Romans 1, Paul gives some specific things. Examples of how our own bodies uh, have been dishonored and disfigured. He talks about homosexual practice. Not the attraction, but the acts. He talks about gossip and deception. He talks about disobedience to parents. He talks about all of these different signs of brokenness in the world. And it's uncomfortable for us. I don't want to know that. But Paul says, look, if you're willing to say what's broken, you're ready for the power of God to put it back together again. You're ready for God to make it whole again. Not only is the, God, the good news the power of God for salvation, but it is the revelation of God's faithfulness. It's the revelation of God's faithfulness. Paul says, in the gospel is revealed the faithfulness of God. We're going to map out a theme at several points in this letter where Paul's basically addressing the question, will God give up on his creation? That's Romans 8. But also, will God give up on his promise to Abraham? That's Romans 4. Will God give up on the human race? Romans 2 and 3. And the stunning answer is no. God will be faithful. God has been faithful. God's faithfulness is so strong that it will redeem us in our unfaithfulness. In fact, the theme throughout Romans again and again is that God's faithfulness is stronger than our unfaithfulness. That God's faithfulness is stronger than our... our, If our unfaithful disobedience disordered our lives and the world and disfigured us and dehumanized us, then Christ's obedience, Romans 5, God's faithfulness puts everything back on track again. God's faithfulness redeems us again. God's faithfulness makes it possible for us to be faithfully obedient. As we get ready to come to the table this morning, We come to Jesus' table every week as the most poignant reminder of the faithfulness of God revealed in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the Bible says, became obedient even to the point of death. He carried in himself our unfaithfulness. God judged in the body of Jesus all of the sin of the world, all of the evil of the world, all of the brokenness of the world. And when God raised Jesus from the dead with this newly transformed body, it was an announcement to all of us that if you put your faith in Christ, you can be put back together again too. You can begin to see your life come back together. I, I don't mean that, oh, magically you're going to get all the right business deals and your bank account's going to be fine. I'm not saying that, please. The good news is actually better than that. So your life with God 
your life with one another, reconciliation with God and with your brothers and sisters, it all gets put back together again. And so as we come to the table this morning, as we bow our heads, we always begin with a prayer of confession. Because confession is our way of joining ourselves to the death of Christ. To say, all right, I can't. I have failed. I have been unfaithful. I have not loved you. I have not loved my neighbor. We're dying again. And then we hear the word of forgiveness. It's like resurrection again. Saying to us again and again, God's faithfulness is stronger than your unfaithfulness. Amen.